Today we read Hosea 5. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mitzpah, and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He is withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn at Gim in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel I will make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Good morning. How is everybody this morning? Is anybody attending a wedding this summer? <laughs> this, we are calling this summer for our family the year of the wedding because as a family we will attend more weddings than we ever have in our whole life. I officiated at my first wedding a few weeks ago, and the most joyous event of all is that our daughter is getting married uh, this next week. So we are very happy to participate in this time of union of a man and a woman uh, and a commitment for life. Marriage and wedding, wedding and marriage, is how the whole human story began. And it is how the whole human story will end. And so in Hosea, God gives Hosea this living metaphor that he, he lives out with Gomer to instruct us about our relationship, our intimate relationship with Yahweh God. 
And before we dive into some of these lessons, let's pray together. Our Father, we're so glad that we're here, that you brought us here, that you draw our hearts to you and to one another. Teach us, Father, this morning about our relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ, and about our own hearts, that we might love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the title of this sermon first is called Intimate Discipline. The first point, God says to Ephraim, I know Ephraim. I know you. Know, as we've been reminded in past weeks, is that word that is used for the knowledge of the person, the whole person, intimate knowledge of heart, body, and soul. It's used of marriage when a husband and wife come together to consummate their marriage. They know one another. It's the same word that God is using of his relationship with us. I know you. I know everything about you. This relationship between Yahweh and Israel began when he called them out of Egypt. It says in Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Sounds kind of like a husband talking to his bride. I chose you out of all the ladies on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Why did the Lord choose them and love them, set his love on them? Because the Lord loves them and is keeping the oath that he swore to the fathers. Why does a groom love a bride? I just love you and I'm making an oath with you. I'm vowing my commitment to you. And then it sounds like a little bit of a Middle Eastern arrangement here. It's the oath I swore to your fathers. <laughs> then he says, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Yahweh chose Israel to be his treasured possession, his bride. He set his love on her because he loved her and is keeping the oath that he swore to their fathers to save them from slavery. This is covenantal love. That's the hesed love that Josh referred to last week and illustrated so well. Marriage, all marriages in a way illustrate that greater kind of covenantal love, that greater commitment and deeper love. Yet, Yahweh knew from the beginning that his bride had a wayward heart, that she was prone to wander, that she was really faithless, even though he was so faithful. So it was only a few months into their, if you will, honeymoon, when he took her away from the house of slavery from Egypt in the desert, only a few months, that they committed spiritual adultery. They, their heart went after and fell in love 
with the calf at Mount Horeb. And they worshipped another god. So now we're 600 years later in Hosea and Yahweh is still in deep love with Israel. He still knows her intimately and he still wants to win her love for him. In Hosea 2:14 and 15, he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. He loves her still and yearns for her love. And in Hosea 2.16, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the name of Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered no more. Yahweh's faithful loving kindness would still win his bride. He loves her too much to let her go after another. So he will do whatever it takes to reawaken the love of his wayward bride so that they can share intimacy once again. And the story of Hosea, the marriage of Yahweh to Israel, is really our story. For Jesus Christ has chosen us. He has set his love on us. He has wooed us. He has spoken tenderly to us. He has saved us. He has taken us aside to be his bride. He knows us, body, heart, and soul. And he wants to reawaken our love for him that we may know him again and share spiritual intimacy. I know you, but you do not know me. What had they known? And we want to learn from them. We are his Jesus, the people of Jesus now. What idols had they loved? What things had entered their hearts that they loved more than him? You know, when a, when a groom or husband loves his wife, as Josh also illustrated last week, he listens to her, trusts her, follows her, learns from, even emulates, commits to her. This is the love Yahweh wants of us to win our deepest loyalty and faithfulness. And we were not designed to have this kind of intimacy with two. We cannot know two spouses in this complete sense. So Israel had given their hearts to another lover. And they had called him my Baal. They are estranged from Yahweh. Um, now as it says in verse 1, the priests and the house of Israel, the house of the king, the judgment is for you. Hosea is calling the people out and we have not fallen into this depth of depravity but the message is for first and foremost the leaders. So I would like to ask for the elders to stand, please. And the pastors, 
stay standing? (laughs) (laughs) Then I would like to ask all those who teach in some format, Sunday school or growth or a group or some format of teaching the body of Christ. I would like to ask fathers to stand who have children who you are teaching and mothers. (laughs) And if you are discipling anyone else or mentoring them to follow Jesus, I'd like you to stand too. This message is for you. This message is for us. You have a great responsibility to guard the hearts of those you lead and teach and serve, to direct them to Jesus, to love him more than anything else. And I am one of you. We need to listen to what he has to say to us this morning. Thank you. You may may be seated. They knew and loved another more than Yahweh, but he is just not going to let him go. Because he loves them more than any other can. He loves them body, heart, and soul. Their gods do not. So he exposes the idols of their heart for their own good, that they might confess it, that they have this love, and turn back to him. And so Hosea asks us are we faithful to Jesus alone? Do we know and love him? more than any and everything else. Jesus is calling us to expose our hearts so that we will listen and return. We can use, uh, for a bit of an outline of what they had known, we can use the things that are listed in 1 John 2, 15 to 17. So Yahweh is saying, I know you, but you don't know me. This is what you do know. This is whom you have given your heart to, or what you've given your heart to. 1 John 2, 15-17 Do not love the world or things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world and is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What idols did, do we possibly love more than Jesus? What did they love more than Yahweh? Uh, the flesh. The desires of the flesh. The body and its appetites and its senses. In verse 3 and 4, it says again they have a spirit of whoredom. And that term came up in Hosea 2, in verse 2. It says they have a spirit of whoredom. They commit adultery. Verse 10 of chapter 2, they go after whoredom, wine, and new wine. Not only their daughters are committing adultery, but their sons are committing adultery and going with cult prostitutes the love of the body, the flesh, more than the love of Jesus. They also bore alien children in verse 7. Now the alien children could very well have been uh, children of non-sons of Israel parents. However, 
in a spiritual sense, they are alien to the Lord. They don't know the Lord. I think that instructs us if the parents are engaged in giving their energy to feeding these appetites of the flesh, they don't have time or energy to raise their kids in the training and discipline of the Lord. They are raising a whole generation of children who don't know the Lord. Now, our, our society, of course, exalts the body. And this is worldwide. We come from the Middle East and it's the same. It takes a little bit different form, but it's all about the body. The pleasure of the body, the comfort of the body, the appearance of the body, the preservation of the body. All these bodily senses must be overstimulated. All these appetites must be oversatiated. Food, wine, recreation, licentiousness, all kinds of immorality. And so Hosea asks us, do we love our bodies more than Jesus? Jesus wants us to love him more than our own bodies. Why? Well, he promises to give us a new body. It's nothing we can do ourselves. We need to trust him. He can give only he's the only one who can give our bodies what they truly need. Comfort, rest, strength, immortality. He will give us a stunning appearance when we are clothed in the clothes He gives us in robes washed in His blood. He alone can satisfy our bodies and complete what is lacking in our bodies. And so we're told in Colossians 3.5, Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And Paul tells husbands, now you cherish and nourish your own flesh. Okay? You know you do. We know we do. You must love your wife with the same kind of care and concern. See, Jesus can give us love for others more than ourselves. But Paul says the reason why we need to do this and can do this is because Christ nourishes and cherishes His body, the church. He who is perfect, the perfect who came in the perfect body and was resurrected with the perfectly glorious body, loves and cherishes and cares for all the needs of His bride, His church. The love of the flesh, the pride of life, as First John says, is the second idol. We love our life more than we love Jesus. Uh, our religious life, our life of power. And these people were loving their religious life. They, it says their pride was all over their face, was written all over their face. They would go up with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord but they would not find him. It's because they were acting out of their own selfish pride and interest, much like Jesus said of the Pharisees. They, they love to sit in the seats of honor and to be seen 
praying before men and to be greeted in front of all the people. They love their religious life more than they love me. And in verse 11, it says these people were determined to go after this command. Now, the ESV translates that filth, to go run after filth. But I think the, the NASB is right, the command. What command? Jeroboam had told them, okay, Israel, this is what we're going to do. No longer can you go to Jerusalem and worship Yahweh. You need to go to Dan and Bethel and worship Baal. Worship calves. And these people were proud of this. This is, this is our life. This is our religion. This is what we can do. And they were so proud of their religion. Another form of pride is power. You know, when, when Israel came to the end of themselves and things started to break apart, the, the wheels started to fall off, they sought after the great king in Assyria. Tiglath-Pileser had this empire that lasted for a hundred years and he ruled ruthlessly until he died. They sought after him. Now why in the world wouldn't they go after Yahweh? Isn't he much more powerful than Tiglath-Pileser? He's brought them out, rescued them from the hand of Pharaoh, my goodness. He brought them through the desert. He settled them in the land. They were proud. They were seeking man's power, man's wisdom. And they were proud of heart. They loved themselves more than they loved Yahweh. Now, we know the world is full of pride, isn't it? You don't have to look far or think very far before you see that. But the bride of Christ, the church, cannot know him and be full of pride. If she loves Jesus more than herself, she will boast in Him and His cross. I love this verse of this hymn, When I Survey. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to Thy blood. And Hosea asks us this morning, do we love Jesus or more than our own lives? More than our life? More than ourself? You know, I don't know if you have fallen into this, but I am very proud of this church. Uh, I tell people about their mission program and there are a lot of good things going on. It's a great arrangement if you're a missionary. Uh, the teaching... The, the priorities, the way that ministry is done here, but we can easily slip into this kind of religious pride. When these things come up, we have to mention our church. When people are talking about what they do and how the Lord has blessed them, we have to mention what we've done and how the Lord has blessed others through us. Religious pride. Jesus wants us to love Him more than even our own self, even our saved self, our ministries, our Christian families. He wants us to boast in His salvation, His cross, His sanctification. The pride of life. And the third God 
that they were going after was the desires of the eyes. They wanted things. In verse 10, he says, The princes of Judah have become like those who moved the landmark. And other prophets have zeroed in on this this, uh, uh, desire they have and, and which causes them to sin and grab property and take advantage of of material opportunities. God says in Deuteronomy 27, Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. Now why? Why would that be so bad? Why couldn't we go out and just move the fence post? Get a little bit more acreage. Because think about if you steal, grab, you cheat, you connive, you really betraying your own trust in Yahweh to provide for you. Didn't he set the borders for all the tribes? Didn't he give them their allotment? Isn't that enough? Didn't he, by his omniscience and omnipotence, say, this is what I want you to have? So, if you go, if they wanted more, they're betraying their trust in him. Almost like the garden. What happened there? They loved the new moon harvest. The new moon was intended to be a celebration of Yahweh for this harvest, for what he had provided. But they made it an opportunity to join with the worship of Baal and those cultic practices. They wanted to attain possessions, property, things. They loved things more than they loved God. And we know our world loves things. We are inundated with things. You have to buy more. You have to upgrade. You have to get better things. Around the world, they, they, they have followed our example perhaps or are they just like us? They love the dollar. And this group that just came back from Rwanda said, you know, they don't want Rwandan currency. They want dollars. Everybody wants dollars. We're kind of like a center of materialism, center of the love of things. But we, we are susceptible to falling into this, the love of this idol. We, we think, okay, I just want a nice, comfortable life. Okay, if I don't yet have it, then I'm craving it. I'm, I'm desiring it. And we can fall into this love of things so easily. But Jesus wants us to be more content with Him than we are with material gain. He wants us to love and treasure Him more than any amount of money we could possess. To the point that we give our things freely. That's His, that's his uh, rule. That's His priority, His value. Give freely because you have been given freely. Whoever gains his life, tries to save it, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will find it. So Hosea asks us, do we love Jesus more than things? Oh, that we would be able to say with our whole heart what David said in Psalm 16, the Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The blinds have fallen for me in pleasant places. Behold, I have a beautiful inheritance. 
Thank you, Jesus. So, I know you, he says, but you don't know me. You've known others. So here's what I'm going to do. And this is where it gets really interesting. He says, I will discipline you. Actually, in verse 2, that's translated by some of the older translators as, I will be your discipline, or I will be the discipline for them all. I am not going to leave you. I'm going to stand before you and discipline you so that these idols of your heart can be exposed. And that's a phenomenal thing about Yahweh and about Jesus. Jesus does not let us go. These words are really strong. You know, in verse 1, he says, judgment. That's execution of judgment. Verse 2, this discipline, this is a severe correction. And punishment in verse 9, and fury in verse 10. I am your discipline. Yahweh was their discipline, and Jesus is our discipline. And that's something the Baals and the idols could never do. They could never love a person enough to deal with their, with their wayward heart. And they could never love a person enough so that he would love them in this kind of spiritual intimacy. Paul says in Ephesians 5, something that's read at a lot of weddings, 5.25 to 27, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus loves us so much, he wants us to love him so much, that he will deal with anything that hinders that, any idol of our heart, any other affection that he might restore us and we might have beautiful eternal fellowship relationship with him. So how does he do this? And this this can be very convicting. This passage is all about his intimate discipline. How did he discipline his people? Well, Three things. He gave them a sense of guilt. He let them go and staggered with guilt. In verse 5 it says, A sense of sinfulness or guilt is a good thing. It reveals who we are in the light of who Jesus is, or it can. It shows where the spots and wrinkles of our hearts are so that we might be cleansed. We might want to have them cleaned and come back to him. If a bride sees a spot or a wrinkle on her wedding dress before the wedding, what does she do? <laughs> Takes it to the steam cleaner. Gets it taken care of. My idea, and I don't know if this is I just wonder this, you know, if if this desire a bride has to present herself in the best possible appearance is a hint of the great marriage that's coming where the bride of Christ will be presented in the best possible light uh, to her groom. 
Just wonder. But what did Peter do when he saw Jesus in the, in the boat and had the enormous catch of fish? He fell at Jesus' knees. He says, Get, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Guilt enabled him to see the guilt that Jesus allowed. Let, let him see the own idolatry of his heart. If we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Hosea asks us, are we stumbling in guilt this morning? We might want to pay attention to that and try to find out why. The second thing that the Lord allowed here that he did for his people because he loved them was to actually allow some distance. He withdrew. They'll go up, but they won't find me, he says. And, in, and at the end, he will tear and he will go away. He will leave them. Uh, Jesus withdrew from his followers on several occasions. Uh, often it was to expose their lack of trust, their lack of faith in him. We might say, well, you know, at times I don't feel close to him. I don't know if he's even even here. Don't worry. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. But maybe the situation is more that we have left him, we have turned away from him, and he might let that go for a while. This sense of withdrawal or distance. Because he will, as the father of the prodigal son, he will wait for us to come back to him. So Hosea asks us, do we feel the Lord has withdrawn? Or maybe more to the point, have we withdrawn from him? Have we turned our backs, turned our face away? Pay attention. This may be Jesus' way of exposing this an idol of the heart, of stirring up a desire for him again, of building our weak faith. Now the third disciplinary measure is even more drastic. It's tearing tearing and first there's external tearing and then there's internal tearing he says the new moon will devour your fields you'll have economic loss material loss these celebrations that were supposed to exalt Yahweh and praise and thank him were now synchronized with the worship of Baal and they were, to, they were celebrating things that Baal couldn't really provide only Yahweh could uh, Yahweh is going to take this away. From the outside also, they would have an invader. He says in verse 8 and 9 that this invader will come down. He says, blow the trumpet, blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Those two cities were on the southern border of Israel on the northern border of Judah, so the invader would penetrate all the way into both nations and they, could do, they would be able to do nothing about it. They were threatened from the outside and it was no empty threat because as we know, in 722, the northern kingdom 
was destroyed, wiped out, and the southern kingdom was brought to its knees in 701. Verse 11, he says, Ephraim is going to be oppressed and crushed. And then in verse 14, this is the incredible thing. I will be as a lion. I will tear you and go away. I, even I. The king of Assyria was known or depicted as a lion. Strong, powerful, king of the beasts. But Yahweh is saying, I, even I, am going to be the lion. I am going to tear you. This is something I am going to allow to happen to you. And I'm going to go away. And so Hosea asks us, are we torn from outside forces? Jesus may allow these kinds of things to come in from the outside. I don't think we're saying everything that happens is His discipline, that we have idols in our hearts, but very well could be. It's worth giving it some thought. In the case of church discipline, in 1 Corinthians, when this adulterous man was living uh, and with his partner in the church and the church was accepting, Paul says, to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Tearing, tearing to expose our idols and bring us back to him from the outside. Then there's from the inside. Again, he says, I will be like a moth. The great God who saved them, who loves them, who is their strong redeemer and king is going to be like a moth and like dry rot. He's going to get into the, to the precious things in their life and decay and devour and destroy. In Psalms 39 it says, When you discipline a man for rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. So he's going to work from the inside to quietly, slowly break things down, to tear them. Now notice he's doing this out of his great covenantal love. He is not withdrawing and abandoning them. He is getting into their lives to bring them to know him more fully and know their, His love for them more fully, that they would respond and leave other loves and affections and come back to Him. And so Hosea asks us, are we torn or being torn from within? The Lord Jesus left Paul with a thorn in the flesh. We know from 2 Corinthians 17.7. Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So our Lord Jesus will do anything. He can access anything dear to us and infect or even ruin that thing for our own heart's sake. And he may allow a similar thorn to come into our lives. Well, these disciplinary measures, guilt, 
withdrawal and tearing from the outside and from within are just his deeper love for us. He won't let us go. He won't let the idols of our hearts stay standing that they might be exposed and we might want to turn from them and that he would reawaken a love knowing and being known intimate discipline and he says he's going to do this until you turn and acknowledge your guilt and seek my face all these things he said and Jesus himself will do whatever it takes to win the love of our hearts for eternity he will interfere he will intervene he will intercede for us until he has exposed those things and won our deepest affection again. He will do anything to lay hold of our hearts, exposing the idols. So what will we do? This is a difficult judgment passage. What will we do? Hosea is calling the people of God out. I believe he's calling the church of Christ out this morning. What has the shepherd been doing in your life, in my life, to expose our heart? What have we been experiencing? Have we been experiencing guilt or distance from Christ or a tearing? Pay attention. This very well could be his hand of intimate discipline. Ask yourself, ask why, ask him why. Am I loving the body more than him? Am I loving self more than Him? Am I loving material things more than Him? Acknowledge that other love. Turn from your guilt. Acknowledge your guilt. Turn and seek His face. Now I would like us to, in closing, stand up together. I want to read a love song Psalm 45. It's a love song about the groom and the bride. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. In your splendor and majesty, in your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear 
Forget your people and your father's house and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious in the, is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. The great wedding that we have to look forward to. Let's be the bride and let the groom deal with us. Purify us. Make us holy for himself. Make us brilliant and glorious and change our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad that you have called us to be the bride of Christ, your son. What a privilege. And yet, Lord, we are in the world and these idols do infect us, if not take the affections of our hearts. So we pray this morning that you would deal with us in the way that you will to expose them, to stir up our love for Christ again, and to bring us back. That we might come back in sincerity and humility with all the desire of our whole heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.